This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. For students at Asbury University, what's happening this week on their campus, they can only describe as an act of God. The last several days have uh, kind of blurred together. The passing of time is no longer a thing. A service led by students that started on Wednesday, still going strong the following Monday and no signs of ending. Just our usual like service and praying and singing and then it just didn't stop. People are driving and even flying in from all over to witness and take part in this movement. Mississippi, Texas, New York, and even California. That's an excerpt from WKYT, the CBS affiliate in Lexington, Kentucky, about a student revival at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. Is it real? And what kind of questions do the media need to be focusing on in talking about this student revival? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion, and he's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So what's actually been going on for about a week there at Asbury University, and is it news? What would make it news? Well, the heart of this question can be summed up as, is worship news? Then after you've asked the question of whether there's news in worship, you then have to say, is a revival news? In other words, is like round-the-clock worship on a college campus in multiple sanctuaries going on at the same time is that news this is where i kind of picture myself walking up to the city desk of one of the newsrooms where i worked and trying to anticipate the questions that an editor would ask in terms of whether it's news and the questions are all going to be similar to some of the things you're seeing online right now. I mean, are, are these students unstable? Is there something dangerous going on? You would also immediately get the question, well, what is this really about? In other words, what is the issue they're talking about? I mean, so repentance of your sins is not news. If an editor somewhere turned on the live stream, and most of these services are being live streamed, if you turned on the live stream and there was someone at a microphone praying for deliverance from their gender dysphobia, do you think that would get coverage? Well, if a single student at Asbury University had the temerity to utter those words, that would be national news immediately. Exactly. So what what we're dealing with here is two things, and one's a very familiar quote for our listeners, and that is Bill Moyers, the quote I've said over and over, that Bill Moyers, back in the, you know, 1980s when I was in Charlotte, Bill Moyers told me, he says that the media is tone deaf to the music of religion. This is the perfect example. In other words, if a reporter walked into this room and heard the praise choruses and heard people reading scriptures, you'd be sitting there going, okay, what are they actually saying? 
Whereas someone who knows the campus and knows the themes of the campus and knows the history that revivals play in Methodist history and things like that would immediately begin to pick up things. I'm reading online that there's quite a few prayers about justice and global renewal and, and praying for the church in other parts of the world and maybe religious persecution. And then there are prayers of students repenting of their sins. Now, and here in a second, I'll get to some other topics that I think could be related to this. And if I was covering this story, things I would immediately begin to look for. But the other quote I want to remind our listeners of is from the Screwtape Letters. And C.S. Lewis had his tempter say something really crucial, and this is from letter 25. Screwtape is writing to his apprentice, Wormwood, and the demon says, the head demon or a high officer demon says, the real trouble about the set your patient is living with is that it's merely Christianity. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I called Christianity and, capital letters, A-N-D. You know, Christianity and the crisis. Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and cycle research. Christianity and vegetarianism. Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Now, I want our listeners to realize that I know this temptation because it's going to sound like that what I'm saying is that editors have to try to figure out what the and is in this story. Christianity and concern about the impact of social media. Christianity and the dominance of smartphones in the lives of modern students. Christianity and, well, what about that 40% rise in the number of young women who are reporting depression, anxiety, sexual abuse, etc.? Or you could even flash back to a famous revival at Wheaton College a decade or two ago in which they were collecting baskets of boys coming into the revival services and throwing their porn magazines into buckets to be taken away or alcohol or some other things. In other words, are the sins that are being repented somehow linked to another subject that we think is newsworthy? Christianity and, well, you know this is coming, white nationalism. Can some of this help be framed as politics somehow? Christianity and racism. Are the students praying to be delivered from racism? Are they praying for safer cities and less violence? And, and in other words, a social cause that you can put in a headline. So I think to some degree that approach to this coverage is valid because this is occurring within context. But first and foremost, you have to realize you're going to a worship service. And you're not going to be able to cover this story 
without listening to the worship service and finding out what's in the scriptures, what's in the sermons, what's in the testimonies by students. The content of the worship service is part of this story. And I don't think there's any way journalists are going to be able to get around it. So Bob Smetana wrote a piece for RNS, Religious News Service. What were your impressions of that story? Well, it struck me immediately as written by a reporter who doesn't have a travel budget in his hand at this moment. In other words, this isn't the New York Times or a publication. They could say, okay, Bob, get on an airplane and fly down to that chapel. Find out what's going on. Walk around and talk to people. So to some degree, a lot of what we're reading that's most important about this event is coming out of social media because that's where you're actually getting some of the voices of the people that are there. And I thought it was interesting. One smaller Kentucky paper in Princeton, Kentucky, I was reading the story and I was thinking, wow, this is a good story. I mean, it's got all of these great quotes from people that are there, people who've driven in, people are flying in from other parts of the country and has all of this information and all of these live unseen voices. And I'm thinking, wow, this is fabulous. This small newspaper did this. I got to the very end of the story and it said, this story originally appeared in Kentucky Today, the online news website of the Kentucky Baptist Convention. In other words, an actual mainstream small newspaper picked up a report from a religious publication. The Baptists, ironically, are, are kind of all over this story. There's a very interesting interpretive piece at the Southern Baptist Convention's National Wire Service, Baptist Press, in which it talked about some of the people online are right now about what's going. How do we know this is a revival? Emotionalism singing and flag waving are not revivals, said one person on Twitter. Notice flag waving. No one will know whether this was a revival or not until the fruit is examined years from now. Now, that's a person that knows a little bit about church history. But it's interesting to me that the Baptists are jumping on the story and are following up on it. And I mean, you've got Jonathan Edwards being quoted in a news, in a Baptist Press news story on the distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God. The other thing that struck me as strange about Bob's report, because Bob is a pro. Bob knows the evangelical world, and I would compliment him on that. This was, I think, written fast, and I think Bob, if, if I can speculate, I think Bob knew he had to get something up quick on this thing. And what surprises me the most is that it doesn't contain much material from the live streams themselves. In other words, what are they singing? What are they preaching? What are the scriptures they're reading? And then the other thing is, do we really need a church historian from upstate New York to explain what's going on in a revival meeting to us when you have some of the most famous professors in America on the history of revivals and revivalism are on the campus? at Asbury or they're across the street at the seminary. There's a piece that's already up by Bob Siemens, Dr. Siemens, a famous historian who's been studying these subjects for 40 years. He now has a piece up. So I guess to some degree, 
it's possible that in blue zip code America, we don't have enough reporters yet who have the cell phone numbers of the professors at the seminary and at the college who could tell you, this is what I'm seeing, this is what I'm hearing, let me talk to you. It was easier to reach a professor at a small school I've never heard of in upstate New York than to reach some of the, like I said, nationally known scholars of revival movements and stuff. You could be quoting them, I guess if you could get them on the phone. That certainly is who I would be trying to reach. I would also be calling right now, there's Good News Magazine, which is related to the Good News Movement within United Methodism, which is a conservative movement that's grown out of the history of Methodist missions and revivalism. And their offices are in Wilmore, Kentucky, near this campus. And I keep waiting to read a story in which someone from Good News is quoted. They've already got a piece up on their website kind of interpreting the revival and the history of revival. But I'll bet you that there are people associated with Good News who have been in that chapel in the last couple of days or nights and have heard some of what's going on. So it's a two-layer problem here. One is, do we think this is a story? And if we think it's a story, do we have the time to sit at a computer screen and watch the live stream for multiple hours? I was noticing on, on I think it was on YouTube, that someone put up just a clip from the revival. And the clip is five hours long. Now, picture yourself being a reporter at, say, the New York Times and approaching the city desk and saying, could I take a day or two and watch this live stream and get back to you and I'll see if there's a story here you're interested in? I don't see many editors approving that at this moment. One thing that makes this kind of the man bites dog is that it runs contrary to the typical picture of any campus in the United States today. That was my very first impression when I saw the first hints of this on social media is this is not students protesting racism. I don't know what it is, but it's very different occurrence. And it's not words you expect yeah. to read in 2023, revival at Asbury. You could read them in 1970, but in 2023. Yeah. Is praying about racism less newsworthy than protesting about racism? I mean, that to me is an interesting thing we have to, to ponder right now. I'd also be interested in knowing, I'm, I wonder at some point we're going to read a story where people are counting the people in the sanctuary and going to tell us how many of them are white and how many of them are people of color. I'm expecting that to be dropped into a story kind of any minute now. Methodism is a quite diverse religious community, and where Methodism bleeds into the world of Pentecostal and charismatic life, it can be very racially and culturally diverse. Once again, Christianity and. Is this a story if it's Christianity and racism? Is it a story if it's Christianity and repenting of online porn? Is it a story if? I mean, so some to some degree, people are searching for a handle here, a handle that makes this news, because 
we all know that spiritual renewal in and of itself is not news. I can give just a little personal word here. Back in the days when I was leading the Washington Journalism Center, I probably traveled to at least a third, if not more, of the campuses in the 100 school plus network of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. And I was on the Asbury campus a couple of times. And I went to chapel there. And as someone, at the time I was there, I believe I was still on the faculty at Milligan College. I think this was a trip I took while actually teaching at a Christian college. And so I was in chapel at Milligan on a regular basis. And the chapel was empty. It was before the service. And I walked down to the prayer rail. Now, if you look in the live streams and the photos coming from this revival, you'll see the prayer rail and people weeping and kneeling at the prayer rail. Well, this was not in the midst of revival, perfectly, absolutely ordinary chapel service. Middle of the semester, nothing special. But I walked down to the rail and the kneelers across the front of that sanctuary, and there were boxes of tissues placed, I'd say, every six to 10 feet, the length of that rail. And what that told me was that this was a sanctuary in which altar calls for various purposes, professions of faith, renewal of faith, confession of sins, my mother is dying, would someone pray for me? This was an altar rail that got used. And people there knew that it would be used and thus, they had tissues there for people who came down in tears or eventually were in tears so that they wouldn't have to reach very far to grab tissues to hold up to their eyes and to try to help get regain their composure. Now, I have never seen that at the front rail of any other Christian college in America that I have visited. So what that tells me is that the revival tradition and the confession of sins tradition at the heart of Methodism, and the term Methodism comes from Wesley's proclamation of certain methods of deepening your faith, methods of discipleship, methods of involving yourself in worship, social justice, social action, helping the poor, methods of doing that includes the fact that Methodists are not afraid to flip a switch in the human psyche that is connected to emotions and is connected to pain, but also joy, is connected to repentance, but is also connected to forgiveness. Now, here's the question. Is that news? So, Terry, it's no news that the United Methodist Church, the largest Protestant global denomination, is in the process, literally right now in the process, of breaking in two. One piece is bigger than the other, but the piece that's breaking off the conservative side or the evangelical side, however you want to put it, is growing larger by the day. And then there's the prospect of 
the United Methodist Church kind of being cut off from its far more conservative and, I should say, more revivalistic African wing. So are you seeing any of that context in the coverage? Yeah, it's been mentioned in one or two of the stories. And I think that's a valid connection to make. But it's also something that you need to follow up closely on, once again, because of the campus that we're dealing with. Now, Asbury Seminary is located either on the campus or across the street. I can't remember. I can't get my brain to go back that far and recall that. But Asbury Seminary is a very important place in United Methodism. Back in the 1980s, when I was getting ready to go to Denver, Colorado, and I had I had let some people know that, the word reached a rather traditional Methodist pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina, that I was moving to Denver. And he wanted to make sure that I knew that I was moving to perhaps the most liberal Methodist city in America, ranking right up there with San Francisco, and going to be near a seminary that was among the most liberal institutions in America, as one student once told me, that bothers to call itself Christian. But what he told me was that he had been on a committee and he couldn't hand me the document because it had been buried. And they had studied a very interesting fact, and that was they traced what happened after graduates of different Methodist seminaries went into the ministry, what happened to their churches? Did their churches decline or did they grow? Did they plateau? And what they found out basically was the possible exception at that time still of Duke, which was kind of a mixed place. It's now quite liberal, but back then Duke was more complex um, in terms of the viewpoints that were allowed on the campus. What they found is basically I'm going to have to play loose with these statistics because, once again, this was decades ago. But he said that of the growing congregations in America, something like 70 to 80 percent of them in the United Methodist Church were led by graduates of Asbury Seminary. Now, what was fascinating about that is Asbury Seminary was not even legally a United Methodist Seminary. It was in the Methodist tradition, but it was not receiving denominational funds, and men and women who went to that campus to study didn't have their tuition picked up by the denomination. They went there on their own if their local bishop gave them permission to go to Asbury. So this was decades ago. Asbury was already a major center for church growth, evangelism, etc., and it was beginning to affect the debates within United Methodism. So if you looked at one side of this Methodist split, you're going to find that a high percentage of those leaders have ties to Asbury College and Asbury University and to this kind of to the revivalism that is historically rooted there or at least now is welcomed there. So you're right. There are connections here. And to some degree, you can also dig into the data and discover that mainline Protestants are losing their next generation, their children, at a very, very high rate, whereas evangelicals in various traditions and Pentecostals are losing, yes, they're losing some of their teenagers. Teens always 
rebel and college students always rebel and go off and become, we would now call them religiously unaffiliated. The issue is how many of them come back. And the evidence appears to be that evangelicalism among its most traditional forms in America right now is at least stable or not declining fast while the mainline churches are imploding demographically. So that's another subject that would be very close to this revival because Asbury plays a very symbolic role in the United Methodist Church. So that would be a valid angle to go at it. I don't know whether that has anything to do with this revival at all, but it has something to do with the role that Asbury plays in the wider world of Methodism. You mentioned the anxious, depressed student angle, which is news that is almost perfectly coincides with this revival. Who's qualified to talk about that with the yeah. It's really interesting. It helps that you're on a college campus. At both the college and at the seminary, there are going to be people studying pastoral counseling. And I guarantee you that they have folders in their computer and maybe with printouts in their files at their desk right now on trends among young Americans and what is driving them into these scary skyrocketing statistics related to attempted suicide and depression and anxiety and yes gender dysphoria and a host of other things so you have what I would call authority of title you have people on those campuses that literally they are professor of counseling and youth studies or counseling and family life counseling and merit you have people who spend their lives studying topics related to spiritual renewal as the flip side of anxiety, depression, broken homes, divorce. So there are people there. Now, they cannot talk to you about their experiences with students. It's covered by confidentiality agreements and anything. But I would think there are people on those campuses who might be able to address this. And I think of all of the Christianity and topics that could be linked to this revival. I think the current state of mind, heart, and soul among college students is probably the most valid one to go after. And you couldn't find a better place to find authority of title than Asbury, Kentucky, with the undergraduate and the graduate school education in these topics. You also have, however, authority of experience. I would also be calling the pastors of some of the Methodist and non-denominational evangelical churches in about, let's say, a 20-minute driving radius to that campus. Because I bet these pastors, a lot of them have watched students come and go on the Asbury campus for years, if not decades. And I'll bet you that out of their experience, what I would call authority of experience, I bet you that some of those pastors and the college ministers in those churches could give you some interesting insights into what might be happening inside that sanctuary. So there's speculation that this could spread to other campuses across the nation. The revival at Asbury that was in 1970 actually did do that very thing. And I would point out, without social media, managed to spread that way. If it does does that help the media pay closer 
attention. Of course, it could be all over by tonight, too, but if it does spread and continue. Well, I think to some degree, you have to look at it through the viewpoints of an editor sitting at a desk and saying, okay, what's the news hook here? I think to some degree, we have to wait and see what the press is going to decide is the news hook here. The other thing, though, I would remind you of, I would go back to those boxes of tissues at the altar in Asbury. This is a unique college environment and a unique setting. Could it spread to other schools? I think to some degree it could spread to other schools with religious traditions that are sympathetic to this. As much as we think about Southern Baptist holding revivals, I don't think I've ever been to an emotional chapel service on a Baptist campus. Would this spread to Wheaton? It could, maybe. Is it more likely to spread to other colleges associated with holiness movements, with uppercase H on holiness, related to Methodism and Nazarene schools and Assembly of God schools? Could this spread to Oral Roberts University? Of course it could. I think it has a better odds that it will spread to a school that is sympathetic to religious experience, altar calls, and maybe, maybe I missed one. Maybe there are other schools out there that keep boxes of tissues at their prayer altars. And if they do, yeah, these services could spread there. You mentioned that the RNS piece, you had the sense that it was kind of written rather hastily and without all the resources that a reporter would need to get there and actually speak with the right people. If you were going to just send Bob Smitana a note, what would you tell him he needs in his follow-up? Well, he's a pro. He, do, he doesn't need a whole lot of advice from me, which is part of what made me think that this was written either pretty quickly and that he didn't even have time to sit down and soak up a lot of the live stream material coming over the Internet. I don't know who will put reporters on an airplane and send them to Lexington, Kentucky, rent a car, and drive out to Asbury. I really hate to say this again. A lot depends on what journalists decide this is really about. Christian nationalism, yeah, well, some people are going to be asking that. Look for that in any other stories that get written. Christianity and racial reconciliation, yeah, that might get you on an airplane. Christianity and depressed, anxious students dealing with their fears and struggles and those screens in their pockets. That, I'm not sure editors are going to write you a check for your time or your travel budget to go cover that story. I wish they would, and I think there are reporters out there who are thinking exactly that right now. What can I do to get my editor to realize that this is a story? And I'm afraid they're having to try to find a news hook the editors will think is a story. When the really good reporters, and there are some out there, they know that this is a more complex story, a little bit deeper story, and it's certainly not a quick story.
Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, thank you for your time. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.